Hello, Canada and the rest of the world, and welcome once again to the Netflix podcast, the show where we review the movies available to stream on Canadian Netflix. I'm Dylan Clark Moore, and I'm joined here today by the proprietor of Runout Records. Let's give a big welcome to Mr. Ruzbe Sholay. Hello, everyone. Thanks for having me, Dylan. Very excited to have you here. I've been uh, checking out your store for months since it opened, and finally built up the courage to ask you to come on and do this. So, Ruzbe, is there anything cool that you've been watching on Netflix recently? Uh, not recently, but I would like I'd say that Netflix, I'm really thankful that they have as many documentaries that I'm interested in. That's always what I would gravitate towards when I looked at their directory or the uh, documentaries. Uh, specifically, music ones were always go-tos. Right. I'd always heard about No-No, that documentary about the uh, pitcher for the pirates who pitched a no-hitter on acid. Oh, so my God. That, okay. that documentary was there, and I got <laughs> to see that. The Lemmy documentary was there. Well, the movie that we're here to talk about this week is from the year 1991. We're going to be talking about the Coen brothers, Barton Fink. Before we get into it, I should let you know that today's episode of the Netflix podcast is brought to you in part by UnLondon's 121 Studios, London, Ontario's premier digital media hub and co-working space. Visit 121studios.ca for more information. So the ways that Netflix describes Barton Fink, uh, first, when you hover over the title, it says... When Hollywood taps him to pen a movie script, an idealist playwright develops severe writer's block and gets tangled up in a murder investigation. Which yeah, I, I'd say so, but I think the the pacing of that movie wouldn't it have been better if they omitted the whole thing about there even being a murder. Yeah, I find that Netflix does not care about that sort of thing. Like they'll often just, if something really interesting happens in the last half hour, yeah. They'll tell you about it. They're not worried at all. I worked it. in a video store for a little while, and all the clerks were extremely frustrated at Netflix altering things like um, screen ratios, seeing things that were omitted for Netflix, like censored, whether they needed to, you know, make up or needed to just hit a certain time and they can go over things. So they will mess with things to no one's liking sometimes but right yeah i don't i'm not really uh into that description at all I, I would say that just cut it off at the point where the idealistic writer and his writer's block and then let the viewer see the rest because it, right. it gives you I, know, I think the point though is they're trying to get you to they're trying to get you there they're trying to get cells. you into it yeah exactly so normally when you click on the title the description changes but apparently they only got around to writing one description for Barton Fink, so you get the same one again. The genres this movie belongs to, according to Netflix, are comedies, dark comedies, dramas, and independent dramas, and the moods it assigns are cynical and dark, which I kind of like. I like that you can just click on cynical and get taken to a whole bunch of movies. That what, just... what else is listed under cynical? Uh, let's find out. So things that are considered cynical are BoJack Horseman, Black Books, uh, the Mark Maron documentary, a whole bunch of stand-up comedy, MASH. And that's about it. Yeah. Basically, if it's stand-up comedy, they figure that these people are pretty cynical about life. Which is why I personally love stand-up comedy. I think to be able to put humor on cynicism is uh, pretty relieving sometimes. Okay, Ruzbase. So, most important question you're going to be asked all day. Why did you want to talk about Barton Fink? Because many of the actors in the film I like very much. And it's a Coen Brothers movie. So that's a pretty good reason why I chose it. And I think the title Barton Fink has popped up in a lot of odd places. And I think both of our upbringings. And one of the most notable ones is in that Simpsons episode where... <laughs> where the kids sneak off to go see an R-rated movie. Right. Barton Fink. And that's the one Barton they choose. Fink. And it's like, if you if you are familiar with the content of Barton Fink, for, you know, part of you is like, oh, right, those kids are enthusiastic, but they have no idea what right. they're about to see. So it's hilarious. And the name itself is, you know, just something that you can say endlessly and it just never gets boring it never becomes something that you would want to stop saying i think just the consonants and barton fink that sounds great <laughs> <laughs> i would love saying that all day long barton fink and it's it could be it doesn't even have to be a person's name it could be something that i feel when something happens just exclaim barton fink and it feels great <laughs> okay uh so you're a fan of the movie yeah, definitely. Yeah, you've seen it seen it before? I've seen it a few times, yeah. All right, because this was new to me. I've only been aware of it in this kind of 
nebulous sort of Simpson-y sort of way yeah. where I've, I've heard it said and I've seen the poster a bunch of times and I've always been deeply confused about what the hell is this movie and why does it have a legacy? Because it's more that I've been kind of aware that it exists more than I've been in any way aware of what it is. So to discover that was kind of cool, but it also like there's nothing like the experience of sitting there and watching it isn't you're not sitting there thinking wow this is the most amazing thing i've ever seen this needs to break into the zeitgeist and become the most important movie ever but it's kind of quietly become that by reputation just kind of by trickling itself out into pop culture i don't think i ever saw it that way as being the way you describe it i think the importance for me was is that the last time I saw it before rewatching it for this podcast was when I was in my teens. And it was never a movie that I thought that I would need to watch repeatedly once a year. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean that it wasn't enjoyable. doesn't mean that it left an impression. It has a lot of imagery that I'll never forget. And I, and I, it's, it's, it's an important movie to like think of all the images that you've been th- thrown that have been thrown at you in terms of cinema. And there's some everlasting things in that film that I don't think may have been imitated or referenced in a lot of film, but have never been duplicated. Can you give some examples of what you're talking about? Like the, like the things that really stuck with you because it was when we were originally talking about, like we decided to do this podcast together before we'd even talked about a movie. And then it was like, as soon as Barton Fink came up, you were like, yes, that's something that I have to talk about. So, What are the ideas and the images that have stuck with you so much? I think the main image, and I think for a lot of people, and it's been pointed out over and over again. And luckily, when I saw it the first time, I was in my teens, so I I wasn't exposed to the critiques of it. I wasn't exposed to what was being um, said about it from a uh, cinematic literary perspective. But I remember that scene when he wakes up in the morning when he's beside the woman, Mayhew's writing assistant, or Mayhew's secretary, as she's known. And Audrey, I think. Yes. Audrey, yes. Audrey, that's right. Uh, he wakes up beside Audrey, and previous nights in the hotel room, there's something buzzing around that he, you know, sometimes will wake him up from sleep, and it finally lands, and then he pulls the sheet aside, and there it is, on her naked back. And right there, like, when you see that when you're in your teens, like, that's a beautiful naked woman's back. And then he goes and he whaps it. And then there's like that sizable amount of blood. And he's like, he stops and he pauses for a moment. And it's like, she didn't wake up. Like I slapped her really hard. Mm -hmm. She didn't wake up. And then he looks down and blood starts oozing out from under her. And then he gets up and he starts yelling. And that's, that's heavy. Like Mm -hmm. that transition from like the mosquito blowing up to just all that blood. And it's not that's not horror that leaves an impression that's a lot of blood but it's it's something that's very like i don't want to say like resolute but there's something very calming about that like something has happened and there's an answer to why she hasn't gotten up oh it's because you know something has happened so i just thought that was a really striking image you know we talk a lot about movies having twists and things like that but that was that was a turn that you don't expect to see coming it seems it doesn't feel out of place with the world that the movie's been creating so far, but we haven't been exposed to much of any kind of violence before. I mean, we see Martin from Frasier. I forget his character's name in this. Uh, the author, Mayhew. You know, we see him oh, that's, strike Audrey. I didn't even Audrey. realize that's Martin. Yeah, okay. yeah. We see him strike Audrey in the face at one point, but we haven't we haven't been thinking on that space of murder right. before and of death. Like, it's all been this whole cerebral struggle going on inside of Barton's mind. Yeah. So then all of a sudden it's about this real tangible thing that's in front of him and this real consequence that, yeah, it just, it brings the movie to a whole other plane, this really physical, real scary plane that he's, he has no idea what to do and he's terrified for completely valid reasons. And they do like this really amazing setup of the era so it's 1941 and, you know, just the theatrics of like the movie production house, the honcho and all the intonation, their voice and in, um, in Tony Shalhoub's character. And so there's this playfulness about it. There's like this theatrical setting so that, you know, when that happens, it's out of place because you feel like you're in that time. And sure, you know, violence occurred 
in the early 40s. But I don't think that that level of graphic violence, it's not that, I wouldn't even call that graphic violence, but that amount of um, exhibiting that amount of blood is not something that would be common in 1940s film. So just to see like that contrast, it being done in that in Barton Fink, you know, you're in that 1940s world in Hollywood and it's just maybe a little bit um, still pure mm-hmm. in some respects. And then that happens. I just, I really like that contrast. That scene did this really neat job too of there's almost less tension when you find out that she's dead. Like the real tension is him deciding whether or not he's going to slap that mosquito. Yeah. Because at that point he's trying to decide whether he's going to be a gentleman or whether he's going to finally take down this foe that's been pestering him for six or eight days or however long it is you know he's finally got his eyes on this goddamn mosquito that's been pestering him and leaving marks on his face and then he goes for it and that you know when he slaps her and she doesn't move then you're like oh no what's what's happening here yeah are there any other images that really stuck with you or yeah and it didn't i I didn't remember it until i saw it again recently but the scene when it's just before you see him enter the hotel and go to the front desk that wave that crashes on that rock it's like a um i don't know what it's called in in cinematic uh terms but just a change of scene like going from new york to los angeles i just really like i I was trying to think like what would that mean like what is that but just what it was was fantastic to watch i really liked it as being like this cut to like yeah so as an establishing shot you're all of a sudden you're on the coast i mean not that new york isn't but you're you're on the opposite coast there's waves crashing he's yeah it's setting the scene for this this whole other place but you know with waves crashing against rocks you're already set up for this kind of chaos yeah that he's about to run into because he's completely out of his element even though he's there because he's supposed to be entirely in his element as this creative figure but it's funny too because i thought about that like i don't i never found that his difficulty in getting started in writing the script was because he was out of his element as much as he was not willing to suspend his pride as a like a legitimate like writer of theater right you know, I, I guess that's where the description is very accurate in that, yeah, he's totally idealistic. He doesn't really want to kind of compromise what he wants to be in his mind, is that he wants to be this fantastic writer of theater, and he's been given a wrestling picture, and that's totally insulting to him. Yeah, I was fascinated with his experience, you know, with him struggling with his identity as this writer, because the whole reason that he was pulled up to the major leagues or that he was called to Hollywood was because his play was so well received and it was well received because it was something that was touching to a lot of people and when he wrote that he wasn't trying to be formulaic he was trying to come up with something sincere and genuine so when he gets to Hollywood he's still being told like yeah that's what we want we want that Barton Fink feeling yeah but not too fruity yes but not too fruity uh (laughs) But that's what the guy from Capitol keeps telling him, like, no, like, we're going to, like, he kisses his feet and says, we bow to you. But then it's it's not the voice from above. It's the, the other people on the inside. Anybody who's not in a position of authority, the people who are just trying to give him honest advice are like, no, no, no. Like, what you're failing to realize is they're feeding you a line. And what you need to do is to just go along to get along. You need to fit something into the formula, put enough of yourself into it that it's still that they can still bank on your authenticity and and so that it, it doesn't just fit into the mold, but you have to at least start by fitting into the mold. Yeah. And he, it, I don't even think that he's rejecting it. I think he doesn't get it. Right. Because he doesn't, he doesn't even try at that, right? Like, it's not like he's sitting there and he's frustrated that, uh, damn it, they're crushing my creativity and my, my authentic artistic spirit. He's got writer's block. He can't think of anything to say. That's the only gear that he's got is authentic artist guy. So then when he finally does come up with it and spits out this thing at the end, that's when Lipnick loses his mind on him. It was like, what did you not understand about this assignment? And that's when the reality of Hollywood crashes down on him. And he, he realizes that everybody who wasn't kissing his shoes was telling the truth. Yeah. And that that's not telling the true story of humanity is not what we're here to do. We're here to make a wrestling picture. Right. I think like knowing the movies that the Coen brothers have done, I wonder if they've ever gone through something similar. 
Because I think by that point, before Barton Fink, they had done Raising Arizona and Blood Simple. I don't know which other films they may have done before Barton Fink, but I wonder if, you know, those scenes were informed by either of their experiences maybe being assigned something that, you know, was out of their element. Sure, and I want to be careful because I haven't done... I haven't done the second stage research of validating what's been said, but yeah. just from reading some cursory stuff, apparently they've been asked that question a lot. And they're like, kind of, sort of, but really no. Like, we've actually had a really easy time in Hollywood. Yeah. We've kind of just always done our job. Yeah. Um, and this movie was written at a point where they were kind of hitting some frustration in making Miller's Crossing. Right. And it, they've specifically said it's not that we had writer's block, but we were having some problems with that production. And we decided to kind of take a step away from that. And when we were in that kind of safe space of not worrying about Miller's Crossing, we realized that we had this whole other story to tell and just kind of made Barton Fink as a side project. And then we're able to come back and finish Miller's Crossing with a lot less difficulty. Yeah. I know it's, it's definitely been suggested that maybe not directly, but, but you know, that, that is part of the whole story of Hollywood and of creating mass media. Yeah. We like to tell ourselves that if you create something genuinely, that eventually life will find a way and it'll become this big thing on its own, but you're going to have a much easier time if you just feed the machine. Right. I didn't know that story about them needing to maybe feeling like they need to step away from Miller's crossing, but it makes a lot of sense because the movie is kind of a vignette of a film in that, you know, the way it abruptly, in my opinion, the way it abruptly ends, which is first of all, completely characteristic of a Coen brothers movie um, if not their total appreciation of French cinema and the way it just kind of ends abruptly. But I just like that it may have just been this thing that they could have done on the side, which didn't really need to be this fully realized project, but still provided fulfillment. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I, I forgot in the amount of time that I left between seeing it recently and when I first saw it, I forgot that that's the way it ended. And uh, I'm never I'm never dissatisfied when movies end like that. Wait, I, when you're talking about the ending, you're talking about like the literal ending, like on the beach. That's right. Okay, yeah. yeah. And like I nothing, you know, things like whatever um, Madman Month's fate was, was never concluded. What his future in Hollywood was going to be like was never concluded. And I think for a lot of people who watch films, those things that are left up in the air may be frustrating to not have those things tied up. Sure. But... I think luckily that's never been a requirement for me. So yeah. I can still find, you know, lots of enjoyment in films like Barton Fink. Yeah. You would either expect that if his relationship with Hollywood goes sour, he goes back to New York and you have this, you know, he leaves his home, comes back. Like that's a very conventional narrative or another one would be, he goes to Hollywood, he figures it out. He's a big star, but instead where Barton's left is, this isn't my choice of words. This is somebody smarter than me figuring this out. I'm just going to point out, like, the... It's not often I would recommend something like this, but the Wikipedia page for Barton Fink is fascinating Okay. in how many different readings it suggests, and in a lot of cases, the Cohen's direct responses to those readings on things. But uh, Barton basically becomes, like, a slave to Hollywood, not to cheapen that word at all, but Lipnick tells him that everything that goes on inside your brain is our property, and we're not going to make anything that you do you're going to continue to create for us and we're just going to throw it right in this garbage can until you learn how to play along so this guy who's come to kind of reach the next step of his creativity and his authenticity is told that everything you create if you keep doing what you're doing we're just going to continue to shred going to continue to destroy until you learn to follow this process and that last shot for me is I mean, it's it's very, very, very explicitly the same picture that he's got sitting up behind his typewriter. And so the way that I read that is when he's sitting at the typewriter and when he's trying to be inspired, he keeps looking at this picture of this woman on the beach and he keeps trying to find inspiration in that because it's the only thing in his room that isn't rusty and shitty and falling apart and sweating. It's the only thing that seems like it should be inspiring. Mm-hmm. But we've seen from the beginning to the end of the movie that it fails to provide inspiration for him. What he needs is experiences. So then for the movie to end on that image that has failed to be inspiring to him coming true in his real life, it's really haunting and depressing that it's the most uninspiring part of your life is now the only thing that's in front of you. That's all you have to look forward to is 
nothing and just filling this void which it's not a happy ending by any stretch of the imagination i guess but i never saw it as bleak as that but because i i found it to be comfort and and i don't think that like you mentioned that he lacked any source of inspiration from this picture while it was in his hotel room but whenever i saw him look at it I always felt like that was something that he always had at his as his like solid rock in the bedroom to kind of just like keep him at ease. Right. It's just if his whole idea is that he wanted to write, he he had that specifically framed in front of him. Like he didn't frame it, but that's that's what he had in front. And any time that he was sitting there, he never got anything accomplished. Yeah. He only wrote when he had experiences with other people, like when Charlie would come in. Or when he would have, you know, some idea in his head. Like there were occasional moments of inspiration where he was then able to look past that picture. He was able to look at the typewriter and zoom in on it. And he was so ready to just kind of get into it. And usually Charlie would interrupt that. Right. But the the, the woman on the beach was, I think, a symbol of, of his failed inspiration. Right. So, yeah, I guess I guess I saw that as pretty bleak. But that was to me kind of amazing because it's not i mean the coens don't often give you a true hero and a true villain and that sort of thing right it's it's just here we're we're presenting this to you and this person who throughout the movie wasn't often heroic he was dismissive of the people who he interacted with and he would claim that he wanted to be the voice of the common man without ever listening to the voice of the common man he was always ignoring charlie whenever charlie was trying to Hey, I could tell you some stories, and then he would talk over him. You know, he's not—he's not this great, good figure. Yeah. So it—it it doesn't feel out of place for him to have this, if not hell, kind of punishment for him to be in this kind of creative purgatory <laughs> until he until he learns to get along. The other thing I noticed too, that having you just having said that, the other thing that the Cohen brothers never give us is hope. and i think maybe that's why i'm i really gravitate towards their movies not because it's like there's a lack of hope but i I was thinking about it and the reason why i like their movies so much is that they take the most realistic realistic happening of people's lives and when something messy happens in their movie i think they do a really good job of having the actors react to it as accurately as humans would act to it rather than how actors in Hollywood movies would react to it. Sure. So the pacing of like, you know, the realization that something's gone awry and then how do we deal with it? And then there's like that space given to each of those moments of thought. So there's a bit of panic and people running around circles and then a plan is laid out and then the plan is executed and then you have to see whether the plan works. Like you don't get to see that very often in a film. And I really like that, you know, you see that in their movies. Yeah. And that's them doing the opposite of what the lesson that Hollywood's trying to beat in Barton. Right. Right. They're not writing these cookie cutter movies. Yeah. I think that if Barton was a Cohen, he would probably feel pretty satisfied with his life. I also think it informs their, um, from what I've heard, the way actors speak about, being directed by the Coen brothers actors are very secondary to what is being created by the Coen brothers which is you know like a cinematic experience rather than a movie with actors in it so you know they'll kind of just give you if you're an actor in a Coen movie they'll give you a few notes and then just let you do your thing and a lot of times actors in Coen movies are just wondering was that good enough like did you want me to do that again and they're just kind of like no 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 it's fine we got what we need We'll take care of it from here. I really like that. Mm-hmm. Apparently, John Turturro spent about a month with the Coens kind of workshopping exactly what this character was going to be. And he kind of made the character a bit more over the top than what they had originally intended. He was like, no, like if I'm feeling something, I'm going to go there. And even though Barton, when we first meet him, he seems like this very calm, demure possibly pretentiously tortured artist guy when he has real experiences because he is so sheltered i think you know he spends all of his time in his headspace pretending or at least convincing himself that that's where the real struggles of humanity go when he runs into an actual problem he goes off the rails pretty quickly like he lashes out at mayhew when he gets invited out to lunch i mean granted he's being rude to audrey and it's kind of a chivalrous thing to do but he also like he he's having this huge panic attack uh, when he's it's the day before his deadline and that's when he calls audrey over and yeah anytime that he he's faced with actual confrontation he has this 
big reaction to it. And then when he celebrates, when he finally finishes, you have I this, love that scene. This I love that scene. dance sequence that is completely unexpected from this character because we've never seen him experience joy before. No. And you're like, yeah, good for you. You did exactly what you wanted to do and you're celebrating. Also um, because it's 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 just his joy. Like he's he's like there's beautiful women everywhere in that room. It's like, you know, military men about to ship off and he's like it's his celebration he doesn't care it's like you just see him smiling but looking into the sky he's not like looking around in the room with the people he's with he's like in his euphoria it's amazing yeah but even then he's so out of touch like he's really bad at reading the room because he spends so much time in his head like these men they are shipping off to participate in war in 1941 like this is a very important conflict they're going to be involved in and yeah, he's just like, you guys don't get it. This is my party. And he's at like a USO camp. Like he's so disrespectful to the people who he claims to I'm champion. I'm a writer. Yes. It's like, who gives a shit here? But that's what makes him so great. Like he's so convinced that what he is doing is the most legitimate thing that you could do with your life. Yeah. You're writing about the human experience. And his his worship of writing was interesting to see when he meets Mayhew because at first when he meets Mayhew it's when he's seen the man puking and he's still adoring him mm-hmm. and he says you're the greatest writer of our time and it takes just one more meeting with Mayhew for all the shine to come off that hero worship and for him to start casting judgment and telling this man how to live his life not to say that he's wrong like if you're being that much of a dick to yeah your friend then maybe you need somebody to kind of tell you to step off but it really doesn't take long for him to claim this kind of dominant position and to to realize that you know hero worship is is really only possible if you never meet the people that you want to admire. I also think like his immediate trust of Charlie, who sorry Charlie Meadow, who we then find out is Madman Munt, right? Played by John Goodman. I really like that relationship because Barton Fink is so unaware of himself that. He provokes his next door hotel mate to come over and it's a towering man who can crush him, (laughs) but he yet doesn't ever kind of let down and give this guy a chance to breathe and like find the comfort in their interaction. Like Barton Fink is always, I don't want to say he's on edge, but he's just very, yeah, selfish. So I think for him to kind of use Charlie as a... I don't know, I guess uh, someone that he can kind of bounce his own uh, anxiety off of without even appreciating who this person is or thinking about who he might be mm-hmm. has has really led to him sort of not ever putting two and two together about who the, his next door neighbor might be. And um, I just like John Goodman's performance too. Yeah. I think like the other thing about this movie is that it, just to think about the tra- the trajectory of these actors' careers in Hollywood and in television and this being like probably the first time I saw any of these people. You know, Steve Buscemi, the first time I noticed him and John Turturro and John Goodman. And so, and then, you know, seeing a lot of movies in the early 90s where I guess you can call it special effects, but you know burning hotel hallways like how did they set that up and those are like long looming hallways you know i've never i haven't been to many uh american hotels that are still operating that you know i'm sure there's several in the united states that are that old that still have these very long hallways so just even a glimpse of like you know 1940s united states i'm always i'm into that too one thing that i read that i really appreciated in this movie is that you know, I wasn't there on the 40s, so I don't know if something is actually authentic. And I'm certainly not going to do the legwork to yeah. to researching 1940s decor or whatever the case may be. Although I don't think that this is actually 1940s decor. I think the idea is that this is a previously very classy establishment that's fallen into disrepair, almost like a Grand Budapest Hotel kind of thing. Because, like, the wallpaper is constantly peeling off and it's looking, it's not looking great. No. But that doing a period piece like this doesn't necessarily mean that you have to be authentic. What they really seemed like they were going for here is they were grabbing images of what we perceive that time to be and just kind of going with them. Mm -hmm. Like the idea of this really over-the-top, aggressive, naive, illiterate studio executive being in charge and being 
both a genius at what he does and entirely clueless at the same time you know that's that's an idea that may not be based on an actual person but that's this kind of I don't want to say stereotype, but that's the image of that person that we have in our minds. And they've just realized that and gone with it and explored that. And just kind of being willing to look at how we see these things instead of necessarily needing to nail down how authentic these things are. Right. And we get the same thing with the cops. Like the idea of these cops that are more interested in having witty banter than actually solving crimes. Like I'm not saying they're inept or anything, but just the the idea of these fast-talking, wise-cracking police officers that's an idea that's an image that we have from this genre and from this era but who knows if it's actually based on anything real are they called like that kind of cop gumshoe like gumshoe yeah. police detective yeah, yeah i think so sure so I, li- I like that so you know the rapport between the two police officers and just that just goes back to the way the um the screenwriting is done you know it is comedic in that it's not maybe realistic of 1990s dialogue but it's very maybe realistic of just theatrical dialogue and old time right dialogue. and that's what i'm saying is it's it may not be authentic to those times but yeah. it's evocative of the uh, the idea of what we think that time was like yeah and just kind of having fun and playing in that without necessarily taking itself too seriously just saying hey if this is what people are going to imagine if this is what we imagine the first time we think of the 1940s, then, hey, let's just put that on the screen and see what happens. Yeah. I did notice that the first time that uh, Charlie Meadows, John Goodman's character, came into Barton Fink's room, he was using a lot of sayings of that era. And I think that, to me, I really like that when screenwriting puts in an effort to place it in an era outside of the one that it's being made. I really like stuff like that, those details. And talking about the space... I was really fascinated by, by that, just that hotel in general. I liked that about two-thirds of the way through the movie when Madman Munt finally does what he does and when when Audrey is murdered, that that's the closest that Barton gets to becoming the person he thinks he's trying to write about because he the whole point of him being in this hotel and not being in some hoity-toity Hollywood hotel is that he wants to be where the action is, right? He wants to kind of be living in that space. But he finds himself almost immediately frustrated with all the little things that come with not being pampered, like hearing your neighbor laughing next door Mm -hmm. and then hearing people having sex in the room the next door down. But then he gets to the point where that night where everything goes to hell, he's making a big noise. You know, when he's having his freak out and he's yelling at Audrey about how Mayhew is a fraud... You know, he's yelling mm-hmm. and he's probably disturbing all the people around him. And then when him and Audrey have sex, we hear her moaning. So, you know, the, the parts of the space that he's inhabiting that he's been frustrated with and complained about and is upset about, he's doing all those things and he's becoming part of this world that he's been complaining about. And I just thought that was, that was really great for him as a character. It was just kind of unfortunate that right when he has this, this possible moment of realization, that's when... He wakes up with a dead woman in his bed the next day and doesn't really have a chance to capitalize on it right away. Yeah. I also thought that maybe he wanted to be in that type of hotel because throughout the whole movie, he talks about knowing the common man and knowing like, you know, what the working man is all about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I guess like as soon as he has a taste of what Hollywood might be, he just realizes, "Mm, well, maybe I want a bit more. Yeah. Well, that's his thing is he, he thinks he wants to surround himself with the common man. But he doesn't. He wants to insulate himself from everything that they represent, and he wants to just paint a picture of what he perceives them to be instead of what they actually are. Right. But he wants to get the credit for identifying what they actually are. Like, he's not selling his stories and his pictures to a low-class audience. He's selling them to a high-class audience so that they can feel like they understand what it means to be low-class. He's not actually listening to the low-class people in that experience. The thing that really stood out to me the most with the hotel wasn't even just how it looked, but just the constant presence of sounds, and that he never seemed to be able to escape the awful sounds of being in a space that wasn't well maintained, Mm -hmm. like the sound of the wallpaper peeling off the wall, that gross, sludgy, slippery, sweaty sound, or hearing John Goodman through the paper walls, or hearing people having sex through the pipes, Um, hearing the mosquito all the time, and the one that really stood by me is even when he was having his total breakdown where he's crying about audrey and about just not knowing what he's going to do and his stories do and he doesn't know what he's he's got he's got no plans he's got no idea what he's going to do and he's sitting on the bed and he's sobbing 
but even that sobbing is interrupted by these rusty squeaky bed springs yeah that i mean that's totally a choice to leave that in right to to have that be part of the story but he just can't escape that that he is you know if he's going to be living in this world that you know, there are there are noises and irritations that come with that if you're not going to be pampered yeah were there were there other things that you wanted to talk about other things that you liked well actually here's a question for you was there anything that was different than what you remembered or maybe that as an adult coming back to it you appreciated differently one thing that was striking was i remember when i was younger i guess i just i don't remember audrey looking that way i don't know whether that's because you know i was in my teens looking at an an older woman and just instantly being fascinated and thinking that it was a beautiful woman and then seeing that woman now and thinking like you know that's not how i saw her when i was younger now she's like closer in age to I am she's like I see a strength that I can appreciate more that I'm now that I'm older and then also so do you mean like when you were younger you saw it as like oh he's like hooking up with that old lady or no no no. when I was younger I thought she was beautiful and now I kind of look at her for some reason she wasn't as beautiful as I remember her okay and it was it was this odd thing because it's not like she's not a she's not not attractive but I think it you know what I what I credited most was the way women are cast in Hollywood, basically, because I think if you have a very fresh view, like if 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 you don't have if you have an inexperienced view of movies, and the women who are in those movies at first hit you a certain way, then beyond that, the way women then get cast in Hollywood begins to like maybe skew your ideas of beauty. So I, I don't know if I'm making any sense in that, but I just... Well, no, I, that, think, I, I think that when you're younger, you kind of spoke already about how when you were younger, it really it really caught your eye, you know, when he peels back the the covers and you see her naked back. Yeah. You know, to, to Teenage Ruse maybe that was, that was exciting, yeah. right? Uh, and I'm not trying to be crass or anything, but, you know, so that kind of plants, plants something in your head. Like, f- you know, for me, I remember seeing Titanic when I was, I think, 10 in the theaters mm-hmm. and down at the Capitol when that was a thing. And just being like so aware of like, now I've seen the naked woman and I know what it looks like. Yeah. And having that really like in my head is just kind of like setting your standard. And then to come back later, because we, we did Titanic on this podcast about a year ago. Right. And I mean, Kate Winslet didn't like what Kate Winslet looked like didn't change, but I've certainly seen a lot more and tastes have changed and developed for me as a person. Yeah. So it is a little bit jarring to be like, oh, like I remember this being this incredibly like titillating and exciting thing for me and now i look at it and i'm like eh, not not for me really anymore yeah. but like hey all the power to- that's a great example because that's like another thing it's like kate winslet she is undeniably a, a beautiful woman but from the first time you may have seen naked kate winslet to seeing her throughout more of her career it it changes i don't know what that i don't know whether that's just me being like a shitty human and just <laughs> getting tired of looking at someone for too long and it mm-hmm. not being as enthralling as the first time you see someone but I, I really like that you mentioned the exposed back because it's it's as um terrible as it sounds like i you almost don't need a face to confirm the beauty of that body like that that was just like a striking enough image that like that naked back will always or at remain. least like to you as you know in your formative years as a teenager yeah. developing your own sexuality and yeah. everything yeah i don't think anybody's accusing you of like no uh, but objectifying like, her back or no well no like but that, that's the thing it's like I, you know I, I i'm concerned that in speaking on it i get into objectification about it which which i think is we can't really prevent because we're talking about you know naked women and women in general so it's really hard to without getting into too deeply i just think it's at face value the like like we said we saw something that for the first time it was fresh and it's not as fresh than that other time mm-hmm. i think it's good that we're kind of acknowledging that it's kind of gross what we're talking about right now and that yeah. we're not proud of ourselves no. for for that and we're apologizing and hoping that we can do better moving forward i'm not apologizing <laughs> <laughs> no regrets this is maybe a bigger question because i'm like 24 48 hours removed from seeing this movie for the first time and i don't have an answer for it do you have any kind of answer for what the hell happened at the end there like with the whole reveal and with the burning of the hotel and because there's a lot of speculation about if any of that actually happened or whose head that was inside of or is it that the hotel is actually supposed to be hell or 
Like there are all these kind of theories. I don't think that the story really reads from beginning to end and just being able to say, yep, this is all exactly how it happened. And everybody's walking through these flaming hallways like it ain't no thing. And It's the first time, to be honest, I've thought about it. And now thinking about it, all those events in the hotel have happened in their own world. They're not tied to any of the world outside of that place. So yeah, it could totally just all be in his head. It could be like what he's made up. But I think they tied it up in a certain way that with Madman Munt killing both officers, uh, killing Audrey, cleaning the bodies up, there's not much evidence to pursue him until like, you know, if if the if someone comes to the room, for instance, and if it is real that there's that huge blood stain, but that's something that we won't be around for because the movie ends and you know, he's still a resident as far as we know of mm-hmm. that room. Well, and that hotel is on fire right now, right? Like that that hotel room is probably not gonna be around for too much longer. That's a blazing inferno by the time we leave it. It it is, but I I kinda have this confidence that they were built to last back then and so maybe <laughs> okay. the fire's isolated to that floor. Sure. I just mean that mattress is probably going to burn at least. Yeah. Plus, I mean, it's 1941. You don't have to worry about like fingerprints, DNA testing, all that stuff. So Right. You get the feeling that Barton is getting away scot-free. Not that he's guilty of any of the crimes that happen. Yeah. And that's kind of, I'm, I'm calling him Charlie because we spend so much time calling him Charlie. But uh, you know, that's kind of Charlie's gift to him is fine. I'll, I'll let you off the hook. I'll pry you out of these handcuffs mm-hmm. so that you can leave if you want and i'll take care of the cleanup once again but it's a really strange turn for the whole movie to take and just kind of you figure he's walking around with a head in a box right at we the never same time we never find out what's in the box <laughs> yeah and he takes it to the beach with him she asks him what's in the box and that's so morbid if he's i mean like that you have to think that's what's in the box right you have you sure but at the same time I, I guess i just haven't thought about it long enough to uh whether it's something Okay, so he's carrying something around, whether it's, you know, his inability to focus or whether it's his inability to write or he's carrying something around. At this point, it's it seems like it's least important whether or not it's a head. Um, I think at that point, too, unless the head is enveloped in plastic, it would bleed through. There might be a stain. Right. I'm sure they... I just feel like they would give us one other indication to tell us whether or not it was a head in there mm-hmm. but at that point i think it just becomes completely symbolic of something else within him that right his own baggage or, exactly or just his the fact that he's given every opportunity to find information out about truth and he's way more concerned about being able to sell his own version of truth as a story rather yeah. than finding out what things actually are mm-hmm. boom nailed it head in the box doesn't Damn. matter not in this film <laughs> Yeah. Was there anything else that you wanted to? It would just it would just be talking about just appreciating certain camera angles and certain shots and just camera usage and just how I think those guys have. It's just a method of making film that I really miss. It's that celebration of you know up and coming guys. Um, I think they've paved the way for a lot of independent guys to you know before Tarantino ruined everything. I think th- there was still there was there was still this period this brief period where you know cinema was really celebrated and really um appreciated and techniques were being used to uh great effect in referencing past techniques and I just I'd really like a lot of the camera shots in that film especially like you know when he's standing in front of Mayhew's door at first and I I guess it's in Hollywood writers are assigned to a dorm of some sort which you know they write so that they're closer to the studio but there's just these really nice long shots of the hall and that's really it so what did you mean by tarantino ruining everything yeah movies by the coen brothers were able to exist as examples of their talent and their ability showing like maybe students of the craft i just find tarantino's he's overly referential to individuals other than himself in ways that don't really promote his own talents, but rather expose mainstream audiences unaware, being unaware of like other people's talents. So I think he's kind of exploited that and capitalized off it. So instead of referencing, he's borrowing without 
needing to worry that anybody's going to notice because they they won't know who he borrowed from. Okay. Whereas I just feel like guys like the Coen Brothers, guys like Jarmusch, just have always been developed have have always developed their own style, their own unique styles. Fair enough. All right. Well, I'd say that it's about time to start wrapping things up. So the way that we always do so is by sharing what star rating this movie got in our own personal Netflix profiles. So. One star means that you hated it. Two stars means didn't like it. Three stars means liked it. Four stars is really liked it. And five stars means you loved it. As well, if there's an MVP from the movie, something that stands out better than anything else, I'd, I'd love to hear that too. And then if you have any kind of final comments about the movie. So I would say that my rating would be a four. I think just because it's it's just such a memorable film for me in all the films I've seen. Like I think I've, I've really liked it. But it's funny that I say it having only seen it like a maximum three times but i think that's that's cool that it's had that much of a lasting impact yeah and i think like it's it's one of those films that you know i i i don't know if you have the same but i'll always have like a short list of movies that i always want to recommend to people Mm -hmm. and it hasn't ever been part of that short list and i think i would maybe start to put that in a short list of films that i would love people to see just because it has a lot of uh, aspects to it like you know John Goodman in his early film career John Turturro early Steve Buscemi you know those things and it's it's even though it's just under two hours it's a pretty short film was the next one the MVP for the movie yeah. I would probably say I really like John Goodman's performance I like him being the traveling salesman but yet the really larger than life bible quoting murderer And just the style in which he loses his mind, but yet he can come right back down and speak to Barton Fink in a very calm manner about everything that's happened. Uh, So yeah, he would probably be the MVP of that movie. Yeah, I would also call this a four-star movie. I think it intentionally defies classification and defies understanding in some places, but there was certainly a lot to it. A lot of it spoke to me and felt like there was interesting stuff there and interesting stuff to talk about. For my MVP, I often find myself drawn to people with small roles who do a lot with it. So for me, I picked Tony Shalhoub mm-hmm. for his uh, for his role as the producer. Geisler. It's Geisler, not Geisler. Um, just doing this fantastic, and as I talked about before, the, the whole idea of taking just the image of something as it was and just running with the stereotype and going for it. And him as this aggressive, sharky Jewish producer mm-hmm. and just going to town with it and he's this amazing character actor and i think that i can't remember if it was me or if it was somebody else but he's also been chosen as the mvp for uh, when we covered galaxy quest on this show where he's kind of like the the stoner crew member who kind of defaults into actually being really adept at what he needs to do he's a great actor yeah a lot of fun um cool so thank you very much Reese Bay, for coming on and doing this and thank introducing you. me to this movie um, do you want to take the stage for a moment and tell people about what you do and what you've got going on? Well, in on the first floor of this building at 211 King Street, known as One to One Studios, I have a record store. It's uh, called Run Out Records. And um, it basically showcases my collection from the past 20 years. 20 years is how long I've been buying and collecting records. And I'm trying to showcase a part of my collection that I don't think any other stores in London, Ontario exhibit. And that's a lot of hip hop, a lot of soul, a lot of jazz. And there is, you know, 90s indie rock, which I I do find the indie rock does get coverage in this city, but I've, I tend to go for the, uh, the heavier, more angular stuff. And I think there's a pocket of people who are interested in all those genres who may not feel that they're as readily available in London. So I'd like to, you know, offer that and with it, I I feel like I have a lot to say about what I have to offer. So, you know, anytime that I'm able to engage with people who come into the store, I'm always really looking forward to that. And um, just to talk a bit about what's happening in the store, I'll be having a listening party on Thursday, July 14th. And it's going to start at 7 p.m. And the idea behind the night was um, I had a listening party about a month ago and I didn't come up with the concept until the very last minute. And what I went for was just people going through the bins at the record store, pulling out anything they wanted to hear and just dropping it into a crate that I had beside the turntable. And I would just play them stuff. And some people arrived thinking that we would be kind of seated 
all together and that I would be playing music for them and we would all have a discussion about it. So some of those ideas have helped inform the party I'm going to have, but I think what I want to do is really speak about my experience with hip hop. So it's going to be hip hop themed and I'm going to speak about the first album I ever heard, which was Yo Bumrush the Show by Public Enemy to the most recent hip-hop album I listened to, which is Darkest Before Dawn by King Push, also known as Pusha T from Clips. So yeah, that's what's happening at the record store uh, Thursday, July 14th. Fantastic. Are you going to do a Facebook event page? And <laughs> yes, I, uh, yeah, just uh, that should go up uh, tomorrow morning. Okay. Um, so Yeah, so for, for that, uh, for, for Run Out Records, for that event, and also... I mean, you host a show on CHRW as well. Correct? Yes, I do a radio show every Tuesday morning from 7 to 9 a.m. on CHRW Radio Western. It's 94.9 FM on the dial, and it's called The Heavy Early Show. And that show focuses on soul music from the 60s and 70s, as well as a lot of Canadian content just spanning any Canadian music I like from the last 50 years. Well, we'll be sure to include links to all of those on this episode's show notes on the on the Netflix blog. So that's all going to be available to, to click on, get straight to it, because uh, we definitely want people to check out what you're doing, because what you're doing is fantastic and it feels unique. So I think that people are really going to, especially after listening to you talk for an hour, they're going to want to hear more about what you have to say, especially when it's even more in your own niche. So yeah, thank you so much for coming on and doing this. This has been a lot of fun. Thanks so much for having me. So that's going to be everything for this week from the Netflix podcast. If you liked what you heard today, head on over to netflixblog.wordpress.com to check out the rest of the Netflix content, like show notes, articles, and reviews. You can also find us on all sorts of social media platforms. We're on Facebook as Netflix, Twitter at NetflixPod. You can also find me there at Dylan Clark Moore. And we're on Tumblr and SoundCloud as Netflix Podcast. You can find me on Letterboxd as Dylan Clark Moore. That's where I do an online media diary of all the movies that I'm watching, as well as sometimes doing reviews of stuff that isn't on Netflix. And uh, that's the only place where you can find a list of all the upcoming movies that are going to be discussed on this podcast. If you'd like to support the show, there are a few ways you can do so. One is by heading over to iTunes or whichever podcast platform you prefer and subscribing so that each week's episode comes straight to you. While you're there, if you drop a rating and a review, uh, you can let us know what you think, and it also helps get more eyes and ears on the show. The most important thing that you can do, though, is to tell people about it because word of mouth is still super valuable and you can also contribute directly to this project by way of our patreon campaign whether it's for the rewards like shout outs on the podcast or customized content or if you'd just like to see us keep doing what we're doing you can pledge your support over at patreon.com the netflix podcast is produced and edited by yours truly dylan clark moore the theme music was provided by zach moore Thank you so much for checking out this week's episode of the Netflix podcast, and be sure to join me here next week for a whole new conversation about a whole new movie from the Netflix catalog, because even if you think you've seen it all, you ain't streamed nothing yet.